All right, so Dell and I woke up in Washington, D.C. this morning, had a nice, very early, cool drive to the airport, had to roll the windows up, as a matter of fact, I because bet that I, was nice. I didn't have a sweater or anything on me, get on the plane, and the pilot was like, well, I hope you're enjoying these cool temperatures because it's something different at your at your final destination today, 100 degrees here in Minnesota. Folks like to think of this as the, the white, snowy north, which it is for about half of the year, but it's also this. It's... Stunning to me, the drastic difference between the seasons because mm -hmm. we get very little spring and autumn, right. very little. Right. And then it's either balls hot or balls cold. Mm -hmm. And we're, guess where our balls are now? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that I always said if, if it gets to 40 degrees below zero for weeks on end in February, the hottest it should get is 85. That's what I'm saying. We should Maybe get a break. 75. We should get a break. When D me and Dell moved here in 2018, that day it was a 100 degree day, and we haven't seen these hot Minnesota temperatures since then. So it isn't completely normal, but it is something that happens. So, yeah. you know, as 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 we have been doing in this season, I'm, I'm thinking about the music, the, the, the pop classics, the contemporary classical music that comes to my mind when I think about these things. And this is the tune that came to my mind this time around. that marimba in the in the intro some nice marimba there tell us about this song 1983 where were you what is this this is cruel summer by bananarama and you have to see this video because they are not acting like it's a cruel summer at all <laughs> no they have they're smiling they're doing these uh very dramatic uh not, not elaborate but um i don't know very deliberate choreography and laughing a lot. You know, that reminds me a lot of my life state. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world. We can be upset about being sweaty and sticky out there literally or proverbially speaking mm -hmm. we can be sticky and sweaty which we will be anyway and have a smile on our face and it sounds like that's what these women were doing maybe they are yeah mm -hmm. yeah do you know what a single is tell me more no I a don't. cassette single in 1980 they came out with this idea hey we're gonna you, you people aren't buying 45s anymore so we're going to sell cassingles which Ooh. is a song on a tape so maybe five minutes of tape. And I had that on a single, a cassette wow. single. So you had a whole cassette. So I, maybe if you, was, was there only enough tape in there for the one song? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's not like you could add something to it or. Nope. And on the other side, there was usually um, something that you didn't care about. I'm the B side. I, I miss the uh, instrumentals. It seems like when back in the day oh, when you were yeah. by the when you were by the album, like the physical oh, one of the tracks yeah. would be maybe the hit single, but the instrumental of the track. So you can That's practice right. on top of it or or whatever, you know. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, 
Cruel Summer. Cruel Summer here in Minnesota, but we're happy to be here. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Opus 153 of the Triloquy Podcast. In addition, Scott, to being over in D.C., um, playing with the Ilharmonic. I'll talk about that in a second. I was in New York City uh, with uh, the American Composers Orchestra, uh, shadowing and helping to facilitate the organization's latest earshot program, which is centered around taking composers who have had two or fewer performances by professional orchestras of their music and getting their music not only performed and platformed, but recorded. So they have that archival recording of their piece of music. So I was in uh, New York doing that, hopping around Midtown. I have to say, Scott, the uh, charming nature of Midtown New York is is not something that I was seeing. When I was in my early 20s, going to New York used to be so fun. It seemed like this magical place full of possibility. And not to say that it's not that, but the impact of COVID is apparent on on New York, at least from my perspective. I have never seen so many people using needles right there on the street. Um, Just It's obvious when you walk by, there are a lot of uh, commercial spaces for rent, you know, it, it it seems like once upon a time, getting a storefront in Midtown Manhattan used to be one of the most competitive things that you can think of. But, mm. you know, next door to next door to next door, you're seeing those vacancies. So as, as we are all still uh, facing with the reverberations of what COVID did for us mentally and, and emotionally, Testify. you know, the the that aspect of it is is very apparent to me well but as as well but it was a, it was a great time in in New York I guess I'm thinking about it because when we talk about you know the arts for non-arts outcomes as a lot of people say the the arts and these conversations reaching general society when you're in a place like New York it's easy to throw your hands up because the problem just seems so daunting in a in a city like that with millions of people where do you even start dealing with something like the impact of addiction and drugs when you're talking about new music and bassoons and woodwinds and it it it, sure. it seems hard to sort of contextualize i uh, i'm happy to see that here in minnesota some of that has been dealt with one way or another the the uh, houseless encampment over across the river over there maybe they've moved them or i i i don't know if they've created a program for them or or, or something but in, in, in the heat of of this summer you know this unusual heat here in minnesota i'm thinking about those folks and i'm always thinking about what could be a road toward ending homelessness and houselessness your you know your brother spent years in the middle east and you've said that he says that's not a thing over there at all it just isn't no they take uh profits from all the oil reserves and everyone he said in i can't speak for other places but he was in abu dhabi and he said that everybody has a place to go Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. some people go to nicer places sure sure but (laughs) But, no one's just straight up sleeping on the streets like here in this land of the free home of the brave right another thing that he said was uh when he went to the doctor um the doctors there treat the disease not the symptom Mm -hmm. where whereas over here they were always ready to give him a pill to accomplish this or something to get rid of that when over there the doctor said well you could lose like 50 pounds and a lot of this would go away you know your knees wouldn't hurt you so much you wouldn't have all this heartburn you'd get sleep because you're not waking yourself up for lack of air Mm -hmm. blah 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 i'm going on but you get the idea yeah so when they talk about using the excess 
funds from the oil and all that stuff to deal with those things. I, yeah, I don't know how I it wonder, works, but yeah. I wonder what could be considered excess in uh in for for arts organizations. We we're, we we're kind of talking about this before we cut on the mics, but that philanthropic uh foundation of so many arts organizations paints this picture of we need every dollar we can get and not only the performing arts institutions you know the public radio stations as well you know mm -hmm. we need the contributions please help us you know that that whole thing so it sort of paints this picture that there is no excess and that there is no room to do something else with this this money but but maybe that can be reframed do 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 you do you think there's a uh, an aspect of the even the philanthropic work where there can be earmarked something for community help or or social good or or, or something along those lines. What you mean in the you, arts or or it, just everywhere? I think specifically in the arts. If we're if we're gonna uh. you know play our own role and take our own responsibility, what 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 would you say is a a good percentage if you were the the man in charge that you would earmark for? Okay, we're gonna take this money, and I know here we go in trouble. I don't know. I'll say, I'll I'll, I'll get myself in trouble first. I'll say if I were running an orchestra, at least, oh, I don't know, at least at the very least, ten percent. I could be a radical and say half of our income goes towards, you know, social good and, and X, Y, and Z. People that work for the organization have to get paid. You have to uh, do the work of the organization, especially if it's a nonprofit. You know, you have to follow the mission, your official mission of the nonprofit to mm -hmm. maintain the tax exempt status and X, Y, and Z. I, the, the number that I would throw out, if we're just talking here, I think is between 10 and 15%. If that much of an arts organization's income was earmarked for some sort of social good, you know, uh, paying uh, for tiny homes or or offering money to uh, women's health clinics or or whatever, something like that. I mm. think is where it would be great for a lot of arts organizations to go. What are your thoughts? Well, not knowing what goes on on the upper floors of a lot of these places or the, the back offices, whatever yep. you want to say. Yep. Uh, it's hard to even come up with a percentage. I, when you said 10, I I was surprised. I thought that was a little lower than I thought you were okay. going to shoot. But, um, you know, you got it when you're thinking about these sort of things, it's going to take money from something else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, you, you have to tailor your talk, mm -hmm. you know, because something's not going to get as much or any. Uh, when you start funneling more things toward like what you're talking about, something outside of the uh, the orchestra's own uh, regular lane. Mm -hmm. um, what if we said 7.5% the first year, 10% the second? Oh, so gradually 15 the third. Mm. Because I think the idea is that if you start doing that, you can inspire other people to do it. And then there's other people that want to align themselves with you in your mission. Yeah. So perhaps in your doing that, you get more contributions from other folks who like the fact that you're doing that. I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't know how it works. Yeah. In an ideal world, I think that would be pretty cool. I can't be the first person to be spitballing and sort of thinking about these things. I wonder what 
the conversations have looked like before in some of these boardrooms or, or, mm-hmm. or some of these uh, development meetings of, of organizations. Or maybe there aren't enough people just spitting out this idea. So maybe if you're listening right now, you can propose to your arts organization that you work for or, or that's embedded in your community or that you engage every now and again. What would it look like to earmark a little money specifically for that? Let's even go below 10%, let's say 5%, and then take your idea and increase that fiscal year to fiscal year. And maybe the United States can be like, where was your brother Abu Dhabi? Mm-hmm. You said m- maybe mm-hmm. we can be closer to, to those folks that we love to villainize and demonize in our own media and actually do good for the citizens, actually in, engage you know the most marginalized and the least privileged of the people who live within the, the reach of these arts institutions. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth at least uh, talking about. Um, in addition, again, to visiting New York and thinking about those things, I was in uh, D.C. performing with the Illharmonic. You saw a lot of different Juneteenth performances and celebrations and all sorts of stuff happening across the country. And my question was, OK, so are none of us like actually taking the day off or enjoying the, the, the holiday? It's it's interesting to think about how you have let let's let's take the analogy of a of a bank. You have a lot of bankers that were off today. You have all of the people who maintain the grounds and the facilities of that bank who were still at work. A reverberation of the the class separation and the way that the line of race runs along that line of class disparity and how freedom still ain't quite free. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's something to consider and to, and to think about for sure. Um, for a lot of white folks, I think it's performative. Hmm. You know, they can buy the Juneteenth ice cream and the Juneteenth, 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 whatever it is, um, and check off some box. But, you know, just like uh, being a boyfriend when Valentine's Day comes around, that's not the one time that you do it. Right. You're supposed to be observing things every day or, you know, whenever you can throughout the year. There's a woman who works for an organization in uh, another organization in New York. They're called the Dream Unfinished Orchestra. Uh, Her name is Un Lee. And I was on a panel with her, I think, last year. And she brought up the fact that you can buy a (laughs) uh, In Solidarity card, like you buy a Mother's Day card or a Congratulations card. Really? Solidarity in the United States costs $199. That's how much it costs for you to be an ally to the cause <laughs> to, and, and buy a Hallmark card with a fist on the front. Plus the saying, stamp. <laughs> plus the stamp saying, I stand with you. Anyway, we need to talk about <laughs> empowering our rest and our relaxation. We need to talk about what it really means to celebrate a holiday like Juneteenth and to veer away from the capitalist white supremacist structures that have uh, uh overwritten the spirit of so many other holidays. You've talked about Valentine's Day. I mean, that's basically just a Hallmark holiday. Yes, the so-called holiday season in you know November and December is great to get together with friends and family and do all that, but you know, you can't ignore the the capitalist sort of structure of of those holidays. I think birthdays are still open to 
you know, genuine celebration and and there aren't uh, prescribed things that we should do maybe beyond buying a cake and blowing out candles. I don't know. Post COVID, don't blow on my cake, please. Right. Let, let's just have let's just have the separate cupcakes. To be but, clear, but you get but you get what I'm I'm getting. At. I, do. I I hope that we can begin to think about Juneteenth, especially with its renewed attention in these past few years, and make sure that we don't let it fall by the wayside as another one of these holidays that we can just. Uh, uh, translate into a dollar ninety nine uh, card at Walgreens and a whole bunch of uh, capitalist celebrations and mm-hmm. and events that half of the folks can't get to who we want to be there anyway because they're still at work because they don't have the type of job that gives them the day off for a bank holiday mm-hmm. like some other jobs do. To be clear, I'm not trying to hold Juneteenth up against Valentine's Day. I'm I'm not comparing the two. What I'm saying is is that it's something that should be observed year round. Mm-hmm. Much like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you you get really, really um affectionate with your partner and buy a lot of gifts on the 14th. Mm-hmm. You, know? you should do it all all throughout the year. Yes, exactly. So if you are, are an ally to the black cause, you should be hitting up our cash apps all year. Not only on Juneteenth. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's get started. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. I still need to work out how almost that timing is going to go. We almost got it. We're, we're here in Opus 153. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this is your uh, first time tuning in to Triloquy, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the conception of classical music and aligns it with pieces of music, with conversations, and uh, and everything else that isn't necessarily it, idiomatic, if I may use that word, to the to the uh, phrase classical music, but but our way of decolonizing not only the phrase but the actual genre, so that when folks are talking about the phrase classical music, it is a phrase that actually aligns with their musical sensibilities, their cultural sensibilities, and their perspectives on the world. If you like more information on the Triloquy podcast, you can learn more about us. Check out past opuses and donate at triloquy.org. In addition to your support. Support for Triloquy comes from Springboard for the Arts. Check them out at springboardforthearts.org. I want to send a shout out and a thank you to Texas Public Radio, to WUOT, Georgia Public Broadcast, and all of the other stations who are uh, broadcasting the Sound of 13 Season 2. Shout out to everybody. We love all of y'all. This is out of love. We're trying to change the ecosystem. So let's do that as we go into Movement One. All right. Well, speaking of uh, watching your mouth and being careful what you say, we got to talk about my teacher today, mm-hmm. Lacolian Washington. You met Lacolian at Sphinx 2020. Lacolian is a a name that a lot of folks in the industry know. If you don't know who Lacolian Washington is, he is a bassoonist, a, a black man, now um, heads the Community Music Center of Boston. My first bassoon teacher, my first private music teacher. That's why I am the way that I am now. You see, before we get into this, a lot of string players, and when you th- talk about like the folks who took piano lessons as five year at five years old, and and those sorts of things, by the time you get to college, there is a certain 
respect and practice around the whole student teacher thing Mm -hmm. that they have ingrained in them that I did not have ingrained in me. Mm. So I came to my lesson sometimes talking shit and sometimes with an attitude. You know, I know that sounds out of my character, but it happened. (laughs) And and we, uh, me and Lacolian, you know, we, he would tell you better than anybody else. We, we had some bumps and bruises along the way, but I, I, I could not be more grateful to have had him as a teacher. I, I don't want to go too off the, the path here. You've talked about studying martial arts mm-hmm. and that relationship between student and, and teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, That is something that is very important and something that isn't always ingrained in us culturally if you're not in martial arts or, or music or, or, or anything like that. But it's it's really important. Is is the person who you were studying martial arts with someone that you would still consider a a sensei, as it were? Did, did that relationship only apply to that circumstance? Was it broader? What, what it always ideas? no. It, there was you studying Japanese. You probably know the concept of an on. If you have an on with someone, like a debt. Okay. So if this sensei takes you on, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that's that's. That's not the Japanese version on. Right. Uh, We're following. Keep talking. (laughs) So the idea being that if you go to lunch with the sensei, you're buying the sensei's lunch. If the sensei needs help on Sunday building a deck, you should go over and put in a couple hours. That's sort of an idea. Hmm. You know, like there's a, there's a, a, a responsibility, a debt that you have taken on from this person because they're teaching you. Well, listen, Lacoli, and if you're listening, I love you. You're a role model. You're one of the homies. You pay for lunch. <laughs> anyway, let me read here. I'm reading from the Boston Globe. Uh, the headline is, with a little help from his friend, Yo-Yo Ma stages surprise pop-up in Nubian Square. The world-famous cellist joined bassoonist Lacoli in Washington, executive director of Community Center of Boston, for a concert on Thursday to promote arts, education, and to have some fun. So in this article, it lays out where and how Lacolian and Yo-Yo Ma met for the first time. And Lacolian is a very affable person. It's easy to to get in conversation with him and, and have a good time. Mm-hmm. And in the article, it says that they first started talking. They found a point of connection with Yo-Yo Ma being a cellist and Lacolian being the bassoonist with a piece by Mozart. Let me let me read from the from the article where it lays that out here. It says, when Yo-Yo Ma and Lacoli in Washington met at a party last October, the pair hit it off. Ma found out that Washington, who is executive director of arts education nonprofit Community Music Center of Boston, was a bassoonist and asked if he knew the sonata for bassoon and cello by Mozart. So they started kicking it off and talking about this little piece of music here. So long story short, connecting about that piece of music allowed them to talk and connect about other pieces of music, and it led to a little collaboration where the two performed some music and really showed the power of the bassoon and the cello and cross-cultural collaboration and, and everything that you can think of. So, mm. okay, shout out to Lacolian. 
we love the we we love the collaboration. We love where it started. If you were at a party, Scott, and met Yo Yo Ma, is Mozart something that would come up in conversation? Is that what you would bring up if you wanted to engage? Is that how I would the world famous what I would Yo-Yo open Ma? with? <laughs> what I would open that, with? And to be clear, according to the article, Yo Yo Ma opened with, "Oh, you're a bassoonist. Do you know the Mozart?" So I'm not putting this on the coli and no shade. Oh, no shade at okay, all. Okay, because I was thinking if I was just going to waltz across the room, <laughs> but, but but let's flip the tables. If you're going to walk across, Yo Yo Ma is sitting there with the drink. No one's really talking to him. You see an opportunity to engage this person. What are you going to bring up musically? You're going to have to, well, would you talk about music? Or would you be like, so what about the Yankees? Or you no, know, the, are you going to be that guy? The first thing <laughs> I would do is I'd go over and introduce myself and say, so what do you do? <laughs> and see what- I love that. Yes, he re- see how he reacts. <laughs> and see if there's like a code switch that happens of any kind. Okay. Okay. Um, I'd, I'd love to know if what, he does outside of playing the cello mm-hmm. but if i had if i had to go to my bass uh music question i'd i'd want to talk to him about some of the uh americana and bluegrass flavored things that he did hmm. you know hmm. with, with um uh chris Thiele and company yeah um, yeah uh, that's what i would ask about but, but those were those are recordings that caught your attention go rodeo live. sessions and things like that there was a life about it hmm. there was a um, uh, not a revival sense or pu- anything puritanical or anything like that, but, but it just, just seemed, a, re- a cultural respect of this music and that and that aesthetic and a and a uh, a different treatment of it, a slightly hmm. um, a, a classically trained virtuosic take. Sure, on it. sure. Here's a little bit of Yo Yo Ma uh, playing an, an Appalachian waltz. We'll 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 hear a bit of this, and I'll get your ideas. comes from actually an interview that he was doing with ABC Classic down in Australia. So he took the sounds of Appalachia down under mm. to really showcase and, and highlight some of the some of the sounds and some of the things that he's been doing with music. Um, I think that there is not only something in the notes that's familiar and yet um, new that makes you want to keep listening that makes you want him to keep playing it mm-hmm. there's something about the voice of the cello that speaks to me if i had the opportunity to see and meet yo-yo ma i would really celebrate him for the work that he's done with the silk road ensemble as we talk about broadening the scope of that phrase classical music i think what the silk road ensemble is doing is exactly excuse me this root beer that i'm drinking is trying to <laughs> take over what he's doing is just that, you know, and we have the beautiful sound of the cello and these other Western instruments alongside some of these Eastern instruments. I've, I've shared Silk Road here before, but that, that's definitely where I would have to go with Yo-Yo Ma and, you know, engage him in that conversation of music like this, taking the place of our typical conception when we think about that phrase classical music.
That tune's called Summer in the High Grassland. It's the Yo-Yo Ma Silk Road Ensemble feature. Just really incredible album. We've played from that album here on Triloquy before, but that's that's where I would go. Really? I, would, I would talk with Yo-Yo Ma about that, and I think at the end of the day, it just really highlights his range. Yo-Yo Ma, of course can play the Bach cello suites and has been very famous for for all of that. You know, sure. the the Mozart that he was talking with Lacoline about, I'm sure he has memorized, if 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 anything. But he can also get into that Appalachian bag that you were talking about, that American classical, digging into the so-called world music, expanding, you know, our ideas about that classical music. You sent me a photo of the ethnic food aisle, by the way. That did crack me up. We still out here with ethnic food aisles. Where are you? You, where you saw that Lunds by Arlies. Lunds, get yourself together up here in Minnesota talking about the ethnic food aisle. Anyway, that's what I think about when I hear world <laughs> music. So maybe we could even engage in that conversation. I, I would, I would ask Yo Yo Ma. I would say, listen, I know that you get mad when, like me, when you go down the ethnic food aisle of the grocery store. So what are we gonna do about that phrase, world music? See, I'll be at the table loud with Yo Yo Ma. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, I, I I was really excited and, and happy to uh, read about this collaboration between my teacher, Lacolian, and, and Yo-Yo Ma. Lacolian actually texted me about it um, uh, a few weeks ago, maybe about a month ago. He was looking for uh, the printout of a specific sheet of music or anyway. But mm. I really think it's I really think it's great. We are getting somewhere. And if our leaders, and when I, and by leaders, I mean the folks who are most well-known in Western classical music, so-called classical music, if we can get the Yo-Yo Ma's and the, um, and the uh, Anthony McGill's and the, you know, who are some of the famous violinists? Um, Randall Gooseby. Randall Gooseby. There was a woman, I'm sorry that I'm not thinking everybody's name right now, uh, Mutcher. Who, who's the- Anne-Sophie Mutcher. Anne-Sophie Mutcher. All of, you know, anyway, n- name your famous- Western classical superstar. If we can get them to expand their range and what and what they can do with their instruments musically, that means there will be a precedent set for all of us to learn how to do those things, how to dig into those so-called extended techniques. And I think the reverberations um, around that will be ecosystem wide. So shout mm. out to Yo-Yo Ma for all the work you're doing. Of course, Lacolian, you're a hero. We're going to have to get him on Triloquy one day and have you know, some of the real conversations that, you know, happened behind that door when we took our <laughs> lessons, when that door shut and some of those conversations. Yeah. I can't wait for y'all to hear that. We'll work that out. But to get us to our uh, final accidental for the first movement, I want to share a piece of music uh, that Ricolian, that Lacolian recorded on his album Legacy. He did this years ago. I was an undergrad, but it's an album, uh, Works for Bassoon by African-American composers. And one of the works is called Lacolian Loops. It was a new commission uh, by uh, uh, Daniel Bernard Remain, uh, music for bassoon and clarinet. Lacolian's wife, Karina, is a beautiful uh, clarinet player, a Swedish clarinet player. So this piece of music plays on uh, a Swedish song and uh, some of their life circumstances. They were new parents when this piece of music was uh, commissioned and, and getting performed for the first time. You hear a lot of that emotion in it. And I think it's just an incredibly beautiful piece of music. So it's called Lacolian Loops by Daniel Bernard Remain. Here's a little bit of that to get us to our next accidental. (音楽) ¶¶ 
we we talk about you know in our in our musical wokeness about not saying accompanist but collaborative artist or whatever when we talk about piano players but it's more than just the words saying the words for the sake of saying the words it's about acknowledging that relationship and and what it means to really engage with someone on that level you know the former uh music director of the memphis symphony uh david labelle he said that Music is the second most intimate thing that you can do with another person. And, you know, where's my B out? So when when I think about duets, I think about that. And it's it's really incredible. You know, we're we're sitting here on mics. There's a there's a thing about that. There's a thing about playing music with someone. Maybe if, if you take dance lessons with someone. I, I think one time you told me you used to be into swing dancing or something. Or I tried to be. Yeah, yeah I mean, so... All of that to say, there is just that relationship between the person to person art artistic making, and I love that Lacolian and Yo Yo Ma got to experience that. I love that for them, and it's really incredible. I don't think I gave that a an accidental. That of course gets a a sharp from mm. me. So again, shout out to Yo Yo Ma, Lacolian, and everyone up there in the New England area in the Boston area who got to enjoy what I'm sure was a very riveting performance you think lacolian and his wife shape reads together do you think they have a little read station that they can you know gather and share i bet not because, <laughs> <laughs> because uh let me not be problematic here but i guess this is called triloquy a clarinet player who wants to allege that they work on reads nearly as much as a double read player just doesn't I'm 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 talking shit. Doesn't know what they're talking about because <laughs> fight, it, fight, because fight, fight. Because as a bassoonist, I would never allege to spend as much time on my reads as an oboist. You know, because they're really the ones always you know crunched over a piece of cane with their knife in hand. So if I'm not going to compare See, my work to them, yeah, a clarinet player and certainly not a saxophone player needs to you know talk about what they do with reads with when, when a bassoonist is in the room. Mm. Let let me stop and let you get to your accident <laughs> before I get myself into some more trouble. Uh, anyway, yeah, I didn't got? I didn't mean to start that fight, but it's going to be fun. Uh first a quick natural last week when I I said uh I shouted out Jennifer Higdon's viola concerto and I did not mean to say viola. I think that I was stuck on the Bartok viola piece that you had brought in. Does she not have a viola piece? I thought I, she did. It's a violin concerto. So Oh, okay. Yeah, so um just a quick fix on that. My actual accidental to bring in is going to be a flat. Garrett, I know by this time you have heard the San Antonio Symphony has been dissolved. Uh, I'm reading here from the New York Times. Um, <clears throat> let me go ahead and start at the top. Uh, the uh, San Antonio Symphony to dissolve amid a labor dispute. The decision will make San Antonio the largest American city without a major orchestra. So they were on strike for nine months, and we've talked a lot about, and you were even just talking about New York and the effect that COVID has had. Yeah, uh, A lot of ensembles are dealing with this issue and how to uh, jumpstart their seasons again. Um, plus, a lot of symphonies are realizing that their old model of subscription tickets isn't really working right. anymore. And so, the as I understand from this article, the musicians were holding out uh, because th th there were some significant cuts to their pay and um, the size of, of the orchestra down to 42 from 72 or something. I think it was mm. like a 40% decrease mm. and a 30% pay cut. Now, I don't know about you, but I could not get by if I lost 30% of my income. I would not be able to make it. 
I mean, thirty um, percent or one hundred percent is what I what I and and not that musicians are wrong for not taking that. I like it's it's so easy for the conversation to get bit that way. But my mm -hmm. point is always, yes, a thirty percent pay cut would definitely hurt me as well. A one hundred percent pay cut would hurt me way more. The and that's what it looks like we've, we're dealing with here. The musicians resisted the uh, the moves for these cuts, accusing administrators of mismanagement mm. and greed. The dispute grew unusually bitter with the orchestra cutting off health insurance for the striking players. What really gets me about this article, I'm, I'm reading here, it says, with quote, with deep regret, the board said in a statement, quote, the board of directors of the Symphony Society of San Antonio announces the dissolution of the San Antonio Symphony. I sit on boards. Uh, you know, that that is one of the things that I do. I understand the responsibility of something like that. And at this point in my career, maybe I'm lucky. I can't imagine one of the organizations I sit on the board of being one that I just dissolve. It seems like I'm not doing my job if that is an announcement that I have to make. So as much as I, you know, hold the musicians to the fire, I, I, I definitely do. You know, I think there are responsibilities that exist on that side of the conversation. Ultimately, the responsibility is up to the, uh, the management and beyond that, the board. And I can't wrap my mind around letting it slip through my fingers like that being in that sort of situation. Mm. If, if there isn't mismanagement or something at play, it will always be finger pointing. You know, there's, there's management side of the story, there's the musician side of the story, and then somewhere in between there, there's the truth of, of what was actually going on. But just the reality of seeing a board make that sort of statement is really what stuck out to me most in this situation. San Antonio is a major city and it can support a major orchestra was the last quote here. Um, not really knowing the, uh, the workings and the machinations behind this. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting that they pointed out, they thought that management was exploiting the pandemic using that as a, as a reason to make these cuts. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't, I, I, I've heard of it happening elsewhere. So there's a conversation. I think one thing that we have to ask in this sort of situation is, will the city of San Antonio suffer in a broad way? Yes, there are so many people until they get their shit together and, and figure out how to pull an orchestra back together. There will be people who want and deserve access to that kind of music that won't get it. Will they be suffering to the extent that can be seen across the San Antonio ecosystem. We always talk about San Antonio's music culture. I think that's where they talk about the Riverwalk. And so, I sure. mean, there's, there's a lot of cool things happening down there in San Antonio. Is the fact that they don't have a symphony or won't have a symphony for a little while going to diminish the reputation or the, the cultural strength of this city? I don't know. The question is not yes, definitely. And I think there's something to be said about that when mm -hmm. we talk about the role of arts institutions to these different cities and to these different communities. They talk about the increasing reliance on donations. So what would you think if somebody swooped in with a $10 million check and went here? Well, have, have your season. Well, if the complaint was mismanagement, that's not the issue actually being dealt with. A few minutes ago, you were talking about how your brother was in the Middle East and they deal with the actual disease and not just the symptoms mm -hmm. of the disease. Think about 
the music that orchestras by and large continue to center first and foremost. I'm always talking about repertoire. We're talking about orchestras that can't genuinely engage the musical sensibilities of most people. The philanthropy model only works for things that we give a damn about at the end of the day. You, you're, you're going to fail. If, if you can't actually engage your community, unless, of course, you're relying on that person to swoop in and write the $10 million check or, or whatever every every now and again. But it's going to run out. That, yep. that is that is that is not. And it's a stressful way to work. Thoughts and prayers. I mean, what am I supposed to say? I don't what, know. what am I supposed to say? I think you said a lot. If the organization was centering new music, uh, centering music by uh, people of color, women composers, they're nah, down there. see, I didn't down want to there, go down that one. Down there, San Antonio, Scott, right there by the border, you know, shout out to Alex Garcia, who made this point all the way, way back in season one, I think Opus 10 or something. You are that close to the Mexican border. There should be Mexican music on every single concert. Mm -hmm. That just makes regular sense to me. I don't think that was the case. I, would, I, I don't have the program booklets in front of me. I would bet that that was not the case. I would encourage every single symphony out there, when you look at your program, please dump, dump, the, dump the piece nobody cares about. <laughs> dump the filler one and put in something by a living composer, a composer of color, something. Because how, how many people walked out of that concert with the Minnesota Orchestra where they did Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. Hats off to him for doing that. How many people left at admission and did not come back for check five? I, I, I know a short number. And you had to <laughs> I listen. some of those people. You had to listen through list preludes to get there, to get to Seven Last Words. Mm -mm. Scott is dragging the Minnesota Orchestra. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not dragging him. I want to know why. You're making a good point. You're, you're you're making a very good point, and and I I agree with you. Look, I'll say this, and I'm done. <laughs> this has gone on way longer than I thought it would. Have. We are not all arts administrators. We are not all orchestra board members. We are not all managers of these orchestras. What we all are are people who love orchestral music, who love the art form in one way or another, and people who want to see it survive and thrive. And that takes some very specific work. That takes work beyond going to rehearsal, coming home, practicing, going to rehearsal, going home, practicing, going to play the show, you know, going to the gala concerts or whatever you do within your responsibilities. And that's just it. There has to be more active engagement of the organization and maintaining the institution and I'm, I, I feel like a lack of that played a big role in, in this situation. San Antonio Symphony, we will see you again. I'm going to speak that into existence. The comeback will be great, but there's a lot of conversations that need to happen between now and then. Let's transition into the second movement with a San Antonio-themed piece of music. This is called Alamo Gardens, the first movement of Frank T. Kelly's San Antonio Dances. Thank you. 
I suppose I'll pay for that for 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 putting some onus on the on the musicians. But help me out, Scott. And we don't have to talk specifically about the orchestras, but you have to agree that in an organizational structure, at some point, you need everybody in whatever way they can to think about the maintenance of the organization beyond their specific role within it. Mm-hmm. That that has to be something that you have some experience with or, or, or some thought some, on. My, yeah, my question is, is how much say does an orchestra musician have in what gets on the program? And again, that's why we're talking about empowerment training because a lot uh, of these okay, orchestras okay. have teams who do that. Right. But musicians have to feel empowered enough to press back and challenge that. I've never worked anywhere where I did not push back mm. <laughs> on something, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe that's a testament to my work history and, and the way things are. But even in my new role with the American Composers Orchestra, internally, there are conversations that we're having, specifically when it comes to the way that we communicate externally. There's always something there, and there's always a role that we can play in making sure that we, you know, deal deal with those little small details. The devil is in the details so that big issues like dissolving a whole company may be avoided. I think I, I just think there's something to that. Mm-hmm. So if the musicians want to bury me, so be it. I'm also not sitting here as an orchestral musician looking for a job. We're in the second movement. <laughs> where we go talk about <laughs> right. some of the let's, music we've been uh, spending book, some time with this week. Bookmark and uh... <laughs> I'm going to get us started. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't love always bringing in, you know, the so-called pop music, even though I do affirm much of it as American classical. But I could not bring in music by Drake this week. So this past Friday, he released an unannounced album called Honestly, Nevermind. And it's sort of out of character. That's what a lot of people are saying about it. It doesn't necessarily sound like what they were expecting from Drake. It's not really a hip hop album. It's more of a dance music album. It took me one full listen through to understand, okay, this is the vibe. This is where I am. You know, sometimes you have to do that with music. Like this is, this is what I'm dealing with. Let me just Take that in first and then think about my opinions on it within that context. So that's what this took for me at first. And once I got there, oh, this is dance music. This is music that I can hear at the, you know, we're in Pride Month. I can hear at the Gay Pride Beer Garden, you know, at the at the Pride event or or whatever's going on. You know, I, I, I was able to get into it. And uh, the two tracks on the album that caught my attention the most, um, the first one is called Calling My Name. There's a little bit of, you know, patriarchal, sexual, whatever in here. You know, we can a little we, we, we can we can do that. But I just think the general vibe is is really awesome. And I've enjoyed spending some time with it. There's a beautiful melancholy in the song for me. You know, you have that soft piano in the background with that with that beat going. And there's just the, the I don't know, the, the melancholy is the word that comes to mind for me. You know, it's very much dance music, but maybe it's after the club 
dance music. You're on your way home in the car and the woman that you were trying to entice, maybe by even using those phrases, say, saying your your Because mm -hmm it always my name. works. <laughs> maybe you're dealing with that. I don't know. There, there's, there's some depth in the dance music. I guess that's my point. A lot of dance music out here is just boots and cats. Mm -hmm. For me, it's not quite that. There's a little bit of, of depth to it. Anyway, there's that track that I really love. And there's another track that I wanted to bring in, Scott, because it had me uh, thinking about you and your guitar playing. It uh, It's called The Tie That, or it's called Tie That Binds. And there's some really cool electric guitar improvisation in this track that I think works really perfectly, again, for that melancholic, up, upbeat sort of fusion mixture that I hear in this music. some words for that guitar solo maybe it's not a sad guitar solo but it's a guitar solo with a little bit of grayness on top of it at least from my ear how, how would you what, what words would you describe to, to 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 use to describe that a little sullen yeah yeah maybe that's a, a, a good word for it yeah but at the same time there is a um, it, it, there's a fire about it you know some of the the mm. quick fire plucking and i'm assuming that drake has the money to actually pay somebody who could play that i mean that That's doesn't not, sound like a, a a garage band instrument or a ableton instrument to me maybe it could be you'd but be surprised really on the ableton front yeah and i've learned loads of things in this pro tools class that i haven't been able to pick my head uh, turn my head away from recently but um I have to tell you, I appreciate the second track more than the first. Yeah. And that's only because for me, the P word is right behind the N word as far as being a punch to the side of my head sure. when I hear it. Sure. I'm sorry. That's just, it, it just. Maybe that works for him. You know, if he went, went to a dance club and said, you're mm -mm, is calling my name. You know, let let's stop playing games. I would be and, and, I would and be do this. wiping martini off of my face. <laughs> I'm saying, if you did that, it might be a problem. Drake Drake probably not going to wipe any martini off of his face. So within the music, we can hear Drake's privilege. It sets up an unrealistic <laughs> idea of how it's going to work. Anyway, yes. And that's what makes it great music, because we can break it down and discuss. <laughs> I also think just the general instrumental dialogue throughout the album grabs my attention you know we hear that uh, guitar solo there's some there's some some other moments uh, on the album that really showcase instrumentalism meeting electronic dance music i think it's a success a lot mm. of people don't like this album i think it's definitely within the confines of sort of uh classical infrastructures when we talk about origins of dance music you know detroit being the home of techno and and yeah. how that took off and especially in the early 2000s a case can be made and i've been spending lots of my time with that music so that's what i have this week for for my second ending what so, you bringing in you know how um i'm i've got one week left of this pro tools class and um I mentioned that I've got a lot of emotions that are close to the surface. I've been spending so much time in front of the computer yeah. and so much time doing work. My house is a wreck. I haven't been in contact with friends and it's taken a freaking toll, man. I mean, sometimes I'm throwing a fit when it's just me in the house and other times 
like when I finally turned in the most recent assignment, I got emotional. Mm. And in that, on that kick drum and that second Drake uh, track he played me, I would have rolled the low end on that a little bit off. But hey, <laughs> anyway, um, that's not for me to He's say. Getting y'all's producers together over but there, OVO. <laughs> there's something about understanding, you know, this this uh, this idea of of understanding or being heard or being seen within music. And there's an artist that I came across recently named Aldous Harding. And every song that she performs, her voice is different. And I found an article where she talks about being a song actor. Mm. She's a song actor. And, they, and people said, well, ask her, well, why don't you record in your own voice? Why don't you sing in your own voice? And her response was, I don't even know what that is now. Mm. And that's deep. Yeah. I mean, we, we could spend an hour breaking that down. Sure. And um, the, the track that I recently fell in love with is called The Barrel. And it's sort of like that song by LP that I brought in three years ago, Lost on You. Mm -hmm. The first time I heard it, I was a little bit like, mm, off put, you know. And then after a couple listens to it, I'm noticing little spots in it that are making me have all the feelings. And I don't know why. I only understand something that's coming through. And there's a, a quote that really moved me. This, uh, this idea of being a song actor, of taking on a different persona or a different sound for each song. One of the reviews said, to follow Harding into this uncanny world is to feel both held and adrift. Safe in the company of a skilled navigator who won't let you know where you're going or how she aims to take us there or how close to the waterfall she plans on steering the boat. I encourage everyone to go look up the video to The Barrel because it's a really beautiful juxtaposition between the tenderness of the song and, and sort of an irreverence, maybe. And like absurdist almost sure. images that, that and, sort of break break that. But but listen though, and you, you said that at first, you know, there's music that you're sort of off put by or that's not the right word, but I mean not for me. Sure. You know, like it didn't compel me at first. The the, the first time that, that's exactly what I was talking about with the Drake. It took me that first time mm. to be like, okay, this is what we're doing. So now let me think within that context. It sounds like that's what you're talking about here. And there also is sort of a, a hypnotic effect that she starts to generate because the way that she's moving. Mm -hmm. After I've watched the video a couple times, I kind of feel myself slipping into this little jiggle, this little shimmy sure. thing that she and I'm doing it right with her. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I felt a connection. I felt uh, I, I felt understood, or even though you know it wasn't the words, it was just the sound and the way that it hit me in the moment that I just had a a response that I wasn't even expecting. And this artist is based all the way down in New Zealand. New Zealand. That seems so far away. Yeah. doesn't it but from the other side of the world that human experience is the same or, or similar or applicable relevant whatever word you want to want to want to fill in there i think it's really incredible 
I wonder if you can speak to the instrumental nature of of this track. Well, I'll I'll, I'll jump ahead a little bit and 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 let's listen to just a, a little bit of of more how of, of how this is set up. So we have the vocals. There's the guitar going in the background. You have the piano. We already gave a shout out to our bass clarinet. Mm-hmm. Probably a Barry sax. And then she throws in like, you know, 15 seconds of silence. Mm-hmm. Are we going to get in trouble for broadcasting this part? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but, it, but, but, but again, the instrumental aspect of it, does that play any role in, in the way that this attaches to you? I don't know. The, maybe it's that sweetness attached to that melancholy. There are there are people there are people attached to those instruments. There are people putting their spirit and 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 their hopes and dreams into performing it. Maybe it sounds a little woo woo to a lot of people, but I think that matters. Food made with love tastes a little bit different. Music created with that human touch, that human emotional a touch, sounds a little bit different. To follow Harding into this uncanny world is to feel both held and adrift. Mm, mm, mm. I love that. Go check that out, everybody. Aldous Harding, correct? The Barrel. Yep. Yeah, The Barrel. All right, well, we have reached the third movement of this week's opus. I had the extreme pleasure of speaking with two members, Sean and David, of Third Coast Percussion. They are a percussion quartet who uh, they, they've grown to have a whole organization. When you go to Third coastpercussion.com you can check out their staff their uh, DEI statements and and their uh, growth in that regard over the years they have a new album out that's called perspectives and I've been spending a lot of time with this music as well I went to see them perform live here in Minneapolis I think about three weeks ago uh, uh, shout out to uh, everyone over on their team who got me and Dell tickets to that show it was really really just incredible the the show was accompanied by this really engaging light show and not like a light show that you may think about, but the light, the lighting always matched the vibe of the music. Mm, they mm-hmm. um, had a couple dancers join them that we talk about uh, in the interview. And it was, it was just a, a, a really encouraging experience for me to see so many people in an audience to hear some live music, maybe uh, even so-called classical music, but for the music and the experience to be engaging and for the general just conversation surrounding the music that they're playing, being something filled with relevance. You know how we you know, have the so-called traditional piece of music on all of these concerts. You know, if orchestras want to put on something new, they feel like they have to do the Beethoven concerto mm. or, or, or the overture or whatever. Well, in this context, at least from my perspective, that piece of music, not only at the live performance I went to, but also on the album, was a piece of music by Philip Glass, his Metamorphosis Number 1. I'm sure you're familiar. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with the piano version, and there's a really cool guitar version out there. 
but they arranged it for a percussion quartet. So we're going to uh, get into the interview by listening to just a little bit of that. Uh, we talk about the role of that piece of music on the album, uh, some of the uh, pathways and conversations that led to the commissions and collaborations of some of the other works, including uh, a new piece of music, a newly recorded piece of music by Danny Elfman and all kinds of stuff. So hope y'all enjoy. This is uh, Third Coast Percussion's rendition of Philip Glass's Metamorphosis Number 1 to lead me into my conversation with Sean and David, members of Third Coast Percussion. Hope y'all enjoy. Philip's music is so well known, um, not only in the classical music world, but sort of more broadly as well. Oh, sure, yeah, film music, yeah, yeah, and and um, and his influence on so many different other. You hear his musical ideas, let alone his own music. But you hear his musical ideas in so many different genres, and so many different artists. Um, so, part of this idea of of helping to redefine the classical music experience is also about um inviting people in you know mm. and and philip's music is an entry point for a lot of people um so for us it's not um uh we don't take like a pierre Boulez, uh you know uh break everything down uh and you know who cares if you listen kind of vibe <laughs> yeah to to that's not to us we're redefining the classical music experiences it's actually about inviting more people in mm-hmm. and saying um you know, like classical music, and so far that term is is even interesting at all, which I'm I'm not totally sure. You know, <laughs> like um, uh, it's it's almost got like more baggage than value sometimes. But um, you know, there's something about it that drew us in, um, drew you in. You know, I mean, it, it yeah. draws people in, and 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 there's something that I'm still struggling to define about it. Um, Philip's class is a part. Of, Philip Glass's music is a part of that. You know, and he he studied with Nadia Boulanger, and and it's very much a part of a lineage of capital C classical music. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like playing, uh, it feels about as close to, I think as a percussion ensemble can get to playing um, 19th century chamber music, you know, sure. when you're, when you're playing uh, some, some Philip Glass or something like that. So um, we love it. I don't know. It's, it's really great music and, um, and it invites people in. And it also, it also ties programs together because of Philip's wide influence. Like Jalen has spoken so much about how she loves Philip's music. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tyon has gotten a chance to work with uh, Philip and remix some of his music. So he's also kind of a glue on a program in an interesting way. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, I wonder what goes into uh, the arrangement process. So, I mean, do the four of you sit down and, and listen to Metamorphosis One and say, okay, I think this would sound cool, or you know, what 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 is what is that process? Well, for for that particular piece, uh, Peter took the first stab. So, one of our okay. members said, you know what, I have I have some ideas. I'd like to I'd like to incorporate. So he said, great, that sounds awesome, Peter. <laughs> so he went away and he took the first stab at it, and then um, you know got it maybe ninety percent there, and then. We played through the arrangement like, oh, well, what if what if we did X, Y and Z? What if we added this instrument here, took away this instrument here? 
cut these repeats out of these repeats, <laughs> mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And that's, that's typically what happens when we, we don't do a lot of arranging, but we, we've actually done a quite a bit of arrangement of Phillips music. Hmm. Um, and that, at least in those cases, has been done that way. One, one member will take a first stab at it, and usually it's a, it's a member who has an idea or a thought about how he'd like to approach it. Is the legal side of of that conversation just completely daunting? Do you need you know organizational power to take a, a famous composer's music and make it your own? It really depends on the composer, and Philip, uh, um, by and large, is, is really incredibly generous. And I don't mean just mean to to. I mean, we have a relationship with him because he wrote us a piece, and you know that sort of thing. But um, but um, I think that his there are the normal barriers of just sort of knowing who to even reach out to. Mm-hmm, sure. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, if you get through those first couple layers, it's, it's possible with a Google search um, and you reach out, he's, he's actually quite open to it. Um, and I think as a, as an artist is really fascinated with how a piece of music can be reinvented and he does it himself, you know, um, uh, he, he, he lives with musical ideas and, it, I, I don't, haven't heard him say this, so I'm not quoting him or anything, but my experience of listening to his music is that he doesn't take a musical idea as a uh, precious and limited commodity. Sure. There's not, there's not, a, there's not a, like a, an idea of scarcity with him. It's sort of like, this is a musical idea and it lives great here, but it can live great here. It can live great here, this instrumentation, this instrumentation, this project. Um, and it's a super Western idea to be like, I came up with this melody and I own it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what right, I mean? Right, right. <laughs> I don't think Philip subscribes to that. So I think he's pretty open about it. Yeah. And in addition to being so excited about the arrangement of uh, the Philip Glass, when I took a listen to this album, I was so pleasantly surprised to see a Flutronics collaboration on the on the on the album. I mean, Flutronics is a group that I've seen more times than I can count. I would follow them on the road if I had the the money (laughs) to do that. And I imagine a lot of people have come to Third Coast Percussion as Flutronics fans. I wonder how that got started, what what, what those initial conversations were like that led to what you have now in in collaboration with them. Well, Allison and Natalie, the two members of Flutronics are not only musical heroes of ours, (laughs) uh, you know, we were fans of for a long time, but we're we're also colleagues and friends. Um, especially, uh, we ha- we have a nice connection with Natalie through her time in the Chicago-based ensemble Eighth Blackbird. Mm-hmm. We knew her personally uh, through that connection, and um, you know, just always was like, "Well, oh, it'd be really cool to you know to have a piece by Allison or a piece by Na- uh, by Natalie." Uh, and they've written percuss- percussion music before, um, and then. Uh, we started seeing some parallels between our groups. Like, oh, we're we're a, a chamber group that's commissioning and composing our music, and we're performers and we're composers, and we collaborate with ourselves to to compose. Uh, Allison and Natalie collaborate on pieces together. Third Coast does that. And we're like, wouldn't it be cool if we tried something really scary and we collaborated <laughs> with another ensemble? And yeah. they were totally up for it, which was amazing. And um, the the collaborative composition process was basically everybody brought in some compositional games, like little, hmm. uh, little fun ways to maybe get something going. And, and then we, we ran with everybody's ideas. 
Um, and we, uh, over a course of very intense, short workshopping periods, we uh, developed basically three of these games into, into the three movements of the, the piece that's on the album. Yeah, yeah. I would be, David, I would be so nervous to go into that sort of space, especially with musicians that, you know, I, I respect and, and, and venerate so much. I mean, that, that had to be in, 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 the, in the mix, in the cake mix, so to speak, or, or maybe you weren't nervous at all. It was just another day. <laughs> no, we were definitely, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting, like Third Coast as an, as an organization uh, composes, and, and the four of us compose individually as well, but none of us has the composing career that Allison and Natalie have, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know that they think of it that way, but I, that's how, you know, certainly how I was. Okay, so Natalie's like got a premiere at Carnegie Hall in January, and now we're like uh, sharing ideas about how this melody should go. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> so it's intimidating, but, but also like um, we just really try and find collaborators who are, um, who are just for whom that doesn't have to be a barrier, you know? Um, and, and we've been really pleasantly surprised, um, uh, by, you know, like Philip actually going back to Philip for just a second. Mm-hmm. I mean, forget about it. Like we read about him in history books, you know, 30 years ago when we were in right. high school or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, um, and then we were workshopping the piece with him and we were like, you know, you wrote this on woodblocks, but I really think it would sound better on this instrument, just like sheepish. And, and he was like, we should do whatever sounds better. And I think when it came to working with, uh, Plutronics, uh, similarly, it was kind of like um, everyone was felt, I, th- I think, felt really open to sort of say what they thought. Um, and, um, you know, and I don't know, I, I tried to defer to Natalie and Allison just because they're great. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. This album also has a, a world premiere uh, recording of a work by Danny Elfman. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to collaborate with artists that you know, you love and you've all w- always respected, but it seems like uh, recording a world premiere by a composer like Danny Elfman also, you know, elevates the group, gives you some, you know, proverbial street cred, more than just the feeling of, I can't believe I did this, but the actual residual impact of that sort of musical collaboration. Yeah, I mean, um, Danny's another person who we, we grew up listening to his music, you know, I mean, whether it was the Simpsons theme song or, you know, the soundtrack to every Tim Burton film or whatever it might be. Um, so that collaboration was totally uh, not even one that we sought after because we would have never even conceived that he would be. Uh, we didn't even know really that he was writing classical music. You know, we're, we're towards the beginning of his sort of journey in that in this genre. Um, he's writing a lot of classical music right now, but Philip connected us. And, um, and yeah, I think it's... Um, this goes back to your question about like including Philip's work *Metamorphosis* one on our album and on our program. Um, when we met Danny for the first time, he came to a show we were playing in, in the LA area, and um, and we we got to talking with him. And I think Pete or someone in the quartet basically said a, a more like tactful way of like, "Why are you doing this?" <laughs> like. Mm-hmm. Like, what is it about classical music? You, you're clearly passionate about this. And he talked about growing up listening to classical music. And he talked about the touring he was doing where he was playing performing art centers, uh, playing shows where he was performing his film scores. Um, and he was just talking about how he thinks of it as all music, you know? Mm-hmm. And, he, and then he'll go to an orchestra concert and he'll basically say, like, 
he was saying to us, if you're into film music, and there's this huge audience for film music, you should absolutely be into, you know, Shostakovich, Stravinsky, sure. whoever, you know? Um, so uh, I think for him, it's, it's about um, building awareness and building like audience for classical music. And certainly it's, it's like that for us. Um, and the piece is totally awesome <laughs> and really hard and like such a fun challenge and great to play. So it's, it, it's also does this cool thing that, that Sean alluded to of like, we play a program that's um, Danny Elfman's music, Jalen's music, Philip Glass's music, maybe something we wrote, something by Flutronics. Mm -hmm. Those music should live next to one another. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, we try and create kind of genreless shows in the way that people's listening habits now are somewhat genreless and, if, yeah. and we think a really good way. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm actually going to um, ask uh, about uh, one of Jalen's pieces uh, in, in a few minutes. But, you know, I, I can't help but to think about when it comes to collaborations with Philip Glass and Danny Elfman. Sean, maybe there are times when you want to say, you know, by the way, about um, Nightmare Before Christmas or, to, you know, to, to Philip Glass. You know, I really was interested in this section of the Truman Show. I mean, do, do you feel comfortable having those conversations that have nothing to actually do with the collaboration yeah i we had some we've gotten to at this point spend a little bit of time with both uh philip and danny they're extremely busy and mm. you know uh philip is in his 80s and still extremely active yeah um and we were lucky enough to spend a, a couple of days with him on the campus of the university of notre dame because they brought in philip to do uh, have a festival of his music and he he talked uh, before a presentation of Koyam Skatsi, the, the film that he, he wrote music for, and, and different, different groups played his music, et cetera, over the course of a couple of days. But honestly, one of my favorite moments from the whole time was just hanging in the green room mm -hmm. <laughs> with Philip without anybody there. And we were just musicians waiting to play our concert. And he was like, and we were like, so Philip, what are you up to these days? He's like, well, I'm doing this, this, this. He's like, I'm thinking of maybe, maybe now that I'm, you know, in my eighties, I could probably say no to some things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he's such a, he's such like a gigging, working musician mentality. Yeah. Um, and it was just fun to, it was amazing to see, interact with someone who has gone, has, has had a whole life of that. And uh, as, as, as an, like an internationally known name and still be, Totally just a normal human. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a career that's included part-time jobs, if I'm remembering music history correctly, you know, taxi driving and, and all that sort of thing. That, that, yeah, he, that, that's really fascinating. He talked about, we did, I, we did an interview with him uh, at the world premiere of his piece he wrote for us. And he says he still has his taxi cab driver's license. Mm. Um, and I asked if it was, you know, as a fallback. And he said, no, it's just, you know, <laughs> more of a memento at this point. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, he drove cat taxi cabs. He and Steve Reich had a moving company. Um, they, they both did handyman work kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, and, and did gigs, played on each other's shows. It's, it's all like, um, it all sort of sounds familiar, I think, uh, to us, to our generation. Yeah, I, I have to ask this, and I hope it's <laughs> it doesn't strike a nerve or anything. But when we think about a string quartet, we usually think of the first violin as the de facto leader. Is is that a is that a thing with with your quartet, or or maybe the the infrastructure surrounding you sort of you know uh, allows that to not be a thing, a leader of the group? I, also, the music, honestly, the the. 
uh, music that's traditionally, well, in terms of notated percussion chamber music, uh, there is not centuries and centuries of history sure. of it. Like there is um, string quartets, for example. Um, mo most of it didn't develop in the way where it's a codified instrumentation. Um, so we change instruments all the time throughout the course of the of the concert. And those instruments have different roles and, and that sort of thing. So I think if, if just in general, percussion ensembles, percussion quartets, I think, <laughs> I think there's a, there's, you know, less of like, Oh, he's playing the xylophone. So he's the leader or sure. she's playing timpani. So she doesn't get to talk <laughs> in, in the rehearsal or anything like that. And then specifically to us, we're the four members are the fo four co-artistic directors. So um, we make all the musical decisions together. Yeah. Throughout, throughout the performance that I saw, I, I kept, trying to determine, okay, who's starting this or who's in control, but it, it seemed very cohesive. I, 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 was, in, I was impressed by that. Uh, I want to uh, move on um, away from directly the album, but some of the non-musical aspects um, of your performance, specifically the dance that has been incorporated into this uh, project. For folks who don't know um, who movement art is or what movement art is, I, I wonder if you could uh, fill them in. Sure. Um, movement Art Is is a, uh, a duo of performer choreographers named Lil Buck and John Boogs, who both um, uh, sort of have a mission through that organization to um, bring their style of dance, which is uh, U.S. street dance styles, into um, performance spaces, basically putting it on the same stages as classical ballet you know, as a uh, modern dance, that sort of thing. Um, and we first came to know the both of them through a project we did in collaboration with Hubbard Street Dance Chicago, mm -hmm. really wonderful modern company in our hometown. Um, and Hubbard had uh, Buck and Boogs come in to choreograph for uh, their company. And uh, we uh, had new music created for that show by Devante Hines and in working with Buck and Books on that, basically we just had a really, really great rapport and a lot of um, mutual respect and, and interest in working together again. So um, fast forward a couple of years um, and uh, Carnegie Hall asked us if we, uh, we've been trying to, you know, find an opportunity to perform there and speaking with their programmers, they said, are you developing any dance projects? Hmm. Uh, and of course I said, yes. And then I called Buck and Books. I was like, hey, guys, <laughs> do you want to do a project together? Um, and uh, and that's that's how that project really began. Um, and uh, and it's it took years in the making some of those years during the worst of, of COVID. And yep. um, it's become something we're really proud of. and We're fortunate to be playing it a lot. Yeah, Sean, I really appreciated, you know, how. Uh, how can I say this? The extent to which uh, the dance component made the performance even more engaging. And it almost feels like a bad thing to say that adding something to music is more engaging. I've, I've dealt with a lot of ensembles who, you know, are uncomfortable with diverting attention directly from uh, the, the folks who are playing instruments. I wonder what your ideas are on, on that. Are you ever concerned that, you know, that the dancers will get more applause than, than you or anything like that? 
No concerns at all. We love it. <laughs> I think we we love taking any opportunity that we can to uh, heighten our performances in a way that makes sense um, that that the project calls for, whether it, whether it's film or it's lighting mm -hmm. or it's another collaborator on stage um, performing with us. And dance is, I mean, the four of us, our whole organization loves dance. We've gotten to collaborate in a number of different contexts now. And the general response from folks is that when you put live musicians with live dancers together, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, there's kind of like, it's uh, everyone loves it. The dancers love interacting with live music on the stage. Musicians are totally inspired by seeing uh, the the movement artists that we work with are just phenomenal people and artists and they're doing things with their body which are incredible oh yeah <laughs> uh, uh and kind of mind-blowing at certain at certain times and it's it's a joy to be on stage with them so it's it absolutely encourages me personally to perform at my best honestly yeah when you're mentioning lighting reminded me that that is also a a, a big aspect of of your performances at, at what point does uh, some of the do some of the artistic decisions of the performance leave your hands or I mean are, are you do you have you know ideas on lighting and and when this color should pop up is that all in your purview for that particular project um our metamorphosis show with movement art is we had a we have a lighting designer um mm. fabulous uh lighting designer that we've worked with before his name is Joe Burke based in uh, the greater Cleveland area and we also had a, uh, we brought in our friend, Leslie Danzig, who's based here in Chicago to help just stage the whole thing, mm -hmm. to have an outside uh, over overarching guiding view on the whole affect of the project. And it was really, really valuable to have that extra insight and those voices in the room and the virtual room, because yeah. we, said we yeah. had to develop it uh, during COVID. But um, yeah, that, so we have, uh, Joe made up mock-ups, um, and put it to certain pieces of the music. And he's like, here's a, here's an, a concept that I have. What do you guys think about this? And um, pretty much, basically we were like, this is amazing, Joe, run with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it was, it was so simple and so effective. Um, but it was great to work with the, with everyone again, because as David said, we had gotten to work with Buck and Boogs uh, through our Hubbard project. We had worked with Leslie and Joe on a different project of our own. So it was cool to be on a team where it wasn't the first time out of the gate and we had a lot of trust so if, if leslie told us we're like yeah you need to reorganize how you set up the instruments on stage because it looks lopsided it's like inherent trust in her so yeah. yep got it leslie we will do that <laughs> yeah or yeah. or yeah that 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 word trust actually you know is a is a great segue into the the final bit of the conversation i wanted to have i feel like third coast percussion is an ensemble uh that's easier to trust than others for me uh based in the a uh, very uh, uh, transparent way that you present your DEI initiatives and and uh, what those numbers have looked like over the years. I think it's particularly interesting when it comes to percussion because, you know, like the flute, percussion has always been around and it's certainly not a, uh, uh, a phenomenon that is Western centric or, or Western European centric. I wonder if, if that concept plays a role in your approach to DEI as percussionists. Well, for sure. Um, uh, what, what we found, we've done a lot of sort of thinking about what you're talking about. Percussion exists in, in the Western classical canon, you know, 
but it also exists in basically every culture throughout history, you know right, what I mean? Right. Across so time, what does yeah. it mean to be a percussion ensemble, you know? And I, I think that each different percussion ensemble can kind of define it for themselves. But for us, we've always been musical omnivores. We've always loved um, contemporary classical music, which maybe is kind of at the, at the core of what we do or at the, at the, in, our, in our roots. Mm -hmm. um, but we also listen to all kinds of music, um, all kinds of uh, um, styles and genres. And, and, um, and so at a certain point in our organization, we not only started to take a hard look at, at um, uh, who we were programming, um, but also in terms of, of uh, race, gender, um, but also in terms of just like musical background. Mm. And the two are interrelated, um, uh, or they can be sometimes. Um, so for us, um, the concept of diversity is about um, representation. Um, and it's also for us, uh, the four of individuals in the ensemble, um, sometimes just a way for us to learn and grow, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and speaking of growth, you know, the, the numbers that uh, you publish show that every year you're engaging more and more of this music by marginalized composers. Is it just um, intentionality that feeds into that constant growth or, or is there something else there? Well, um, I think intentionality is a part of it, for sure. Um, something that um, one, we have a board of directors, of course, is a not-for-profit. One of our... our um, uh, directors is a, a guy named uh, Andre Dow, who's a good friend, mm -hmm. and he's with the Sphinx organization. Yep. And of course, that's an organization that's really focused on um, equity in the classical music field, um, lifting up uh, historically underrepresented uh, performers, composers, that sort of thing. Um, and something that Andre encouraged us to do was you know, when we first started actually measuring this, which is the first step, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, fir the first step was us saying, you know, I think we do program a lot of music by white men, <laughs> but, but we don't know because we've never measured it. Right. So we went back through our archives and like actually put numbers to it because it can feel cold. It can feel maybe corporate or something like that. But if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. You can't change it. You can't um, really know what's going on. Um, and in particular, uh, the, the most, um, glaring thing when we did take the time to measure was that uh, uh, music by uh, uh, female identified composers or, or non-male identified composers was just like horribly underrepresented in, mm. our, in our history. Um, and Andre just said, you guys should go out and find 50 uh, female or transgender composers that you think are amazing. You know, just they're out there. <laughs> yes, they are. You just got to look for them, you know. Um, and none of it means that we are, are never going to work with a white male composer again, or that, um, my least favorite thing that is suggested in this conversation is that, uh, is that it's about quality. Right. Right. Um, uh, we work with the people that we want to work with, but there are way more people that we want to work with than we have time to work with. Um, and if our pool of people that we want to work with is all one kind of person, 
whether that's race, gender, background, genre, whatever it might be, then we're not going to be uh, uh, the type of organization we want to be. We're not going to grow in the type of way that we want to. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Sean, I'll, I'll throw this question at you. You know, we, we can apply this to DEI, to uh, gender equity, uh, racial equity, all of these things. But there are, there are uh, a growing number of organizations who are centered around arts for non-arts impact. So really having impact beyond concert halls or the conversation of what classical music is. Is there any of that juice within the Third Coast percussion world, non-arts impact? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, if I'm interpreting your question correctly, um, you're saying uh, our work um, uh, existing and impacting people uh, outside of a concert, basically. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, we're really proud of um, how we put our music out into the world, basically, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a big kind of grand statement <laughs> uh, and that can include concerts, but it could also um, include educational work with students. It can also include someone uh, happening upon our music on YouTube or on a streaming mm. service, or they could pick up a physical recording uh, and listen to it in their home, or they could interact with us um, on a, a couple of the apps that we've developed as a, as an ensemble. And so I do think it's, uh, we, we do think about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we, you know, uh, simple things like when we're deciding what our recital program is going to be for an upcoming season. Um, and that would be the sort of show where a presenter asks us to just come play a concert. They're not uh, specifically asking for a set, a particular program. Mm -hmm. Um, we have very, very uh, intentionally thought about, okay, how does the music that we program represent our recorded music too. Mm -hmm. so if people come to the concert and they want to engage with our, our recordings, is it, is, are they going to be able to do that? Um, for example, that's, that's a one small um, example. No, I, 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 I think that's pretty huge, actually. Go, go ahead, David. Well, one other thing that your, your question made me think of, Garrett, is sort of, um, or I was interpreting the question as like, um, uh, not just an impact on like other musicians or the musical community, but like a sort of a broader sort of impact. And sure. If that's your question, maybe I'll just answer that question, whether it's what you <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, but getting back to something that Sean said earlier, one of our favorite, absolute favorite things that can happen at a concert is someone coming up to us after the show and saying, um, I had no idea what to expect, but I really liked it a lot. Or, uh, I, I've never known, uh, Jalen's music, or I've never known Tyne Davis's music, or I've never known Danny Elfman's music. It's happened. Um, I want to go listen to more. Um, so it's both a sort of a, um, and that person might be someone who's there uh, as a subscription holder to the classical music series at whatever series or festival we're playing. So their record collection is full of Brahms and Beethoven, yep. and they say Jalen sounds amazing. They wouldn't know Jalen's music perhaps without the concert that we played. On a, more, on a specific scale and on a broader scale, if someone um, can come to our show, whether willingly or unwillingly, because sometimes it's like the, the, the partner of the person who's like, sure. you know, <laughs> my partner dragged me to the show and I loved it. Um, if people can just have experiences 
that they will enjoy, uh, that will uh, that they can perhaps even learn something from, that they didn't expect, that wasn't a part of their daily routine, wasn't a part of their go-to, and that can happen through us. Maybe that can open them up in another way. You know, um, it's really like just um, if if someone can can surprise themselves with with what they liked or or the composer that they liked or the type of music that they liked then maybe uh their heart and mind opens up in another way to maybe just a crack you know yeah that's me my most like um optimistic <laughs> oh, that's how i wanted to answer the question i retract what <laughs> that's my answer to it. yeah uh cur curiosity i think if, if someone like because not a lot of people go to concerts anymore just to be right. frank like right. most people don't go to concerts. So if someone is curious enough to go back to that venue when we're gone and like, be like, oh, hmm. I saw this thing on this series and it was awesome and I had no idea what it was. I'll go back next year. I'll go see whatever she did next time. Like that's a win. So sure. among all of uh, the curious, all of the people who have yet to uh, discover the incredible things that you're creating, how can they learn more about you? How can they check out the latest album? We're, uh, our, our latest album, uh, Perspectives, is out. It's on all of the digital streaming services, and it's available on our website. Um, and we like to say, uh, you know, it's it's awesome to listen to it on Spotify. And if you like it, then buy it <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, on our website or on our record label's website. Um, and uh, also follow us if you want to kind of know what we're up to on a daily basis. We've, we've got a pretty good presence on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, and the newest endeavor for us, which we're really proud of, is that we're, we're putting out a lot of content that we're really happy with on YouTube. Uh, lots of cool performance videos, but also um, uh, educational series, both for the aspiring percussionist and also the person who's just curious about what it's like to be a professional musician or um, to think about drums and rhythm all day. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So as as promised, I, I did want to uh, shine a, a quick light on uh, Jalen. So, uh, you know, I, I feel so guilty uh, picking a favorite off of Perspectives because every track is just so incredible. But if I have to have to have to pick a favorite, it's Jalen's Embryo. I, I really love that uh, movement. I wonder if either of you can um, offer some context around uh, that piece of music in particular as we listen to that to fade out of this interview. Sure. Yeah, that's it's a great one to highlight, too, because it exists in two forms. It, uh, mm. it, we have uh, the Third Coast uh, recording of it, but also Jay Lynn released the composition in its original format. So the way that Jay Lynn composed for our uh, ensemble, she came, we workshops together, we, we played for her, she played some stuff for us in, in our space, she sampled, uh, she recorded a bunch of our instruments. And then um, she went away and she worked uh, intensely in mm -hmm. her digital, digital, uh, digital audio workstation, her, her DAW, and sent us um, these movements, basically one at a time or maybe four and a, and a go. Or, and she said, okay, here's, here's, uh, here's the musical material. How are we going to put this on your instruments? And so we, we got, she really welcomed us into the creative process and, and she's just an amazing person. So it was awesome to do this with her, but she gave uh, us the license to um, transcribe, uh, arrange, um, take, uh, insert a little bit of our own personalities and like uh, understanding how her music would lay on our instruments well, mm -hmm. basically. So uh, Embryo was probably the hardest one because <laughs> ah. <laughs> it, um, 
it, it her the original sounds that she used were just they sounded like they were from another world and we we tried so many things and uh threw out so many things uh to get uh that Jalen sound for um for embryo and at a certain point rob had the idea to say you know what instead of trying to do what we did and what worked for the other six movements why don't we like layer in part of Jalen's original music so half halfway through embryo you get a snippet of what um at least one stem uh, a few of the stems from Jalen originally sound like so it, the, the electronic version of the composition kind of makes an appearance halfway through too which is really cool Embryo there by Jay Lynn, a movement of Jay Lynn's perspective on the album by Third Coast Percussion titled Perspective. Sort of like a, I, I imagine that Scott is like sort of the rock music or the even maybe metal adjacent sort of aesthetic of percussion quartet. I like the active nature. Mm. We, we don't talk a lot about percussion music in general, we can all name a few string quartets. We can name a few piano sonatas. Can you name solo or uh, chamber percussion music? I feel like they just kind of well, get forgotten about. <laughs> um, uh, June 3rd, I think Garrett Schumann mm -hmm. had a percussion concerto premiered. And oh, he, even, he even had a video on his uh, Twitter feed. I don't know what it is, GRRT or something like that is mm -hmm. his Twitter handle. So you can go and listen to his composition, which has gotten some really nice praise. Yeah. I, I What comes to mind for me first, uh, I believe the composer is Edgar Varese, a French composer, uh, wrote a percussion piece called Ionizations that I used to love to play all the time. A, a lot of people, I got on a lot of people's nerves playing that piece of music, but I think percussion music is really fun and cool and important to acknowledge when we talk about decolonizing the phrase classical music because we talk about the flute being one of the world's oldest instruments but people have been banging on things and making noise across all cultures and across all time and i think percussion is the perfect world to you know jump off into those conversations so again huge shout out to sean and david for joining me and to uh, all of the members of third coast percussion be sure to check out their album perspectives i'll have uh links to that in the description to this and love love it i, I love to see it all right well we're gonna hop into our fourth and final movement for this week we're gonna talk a little bit scott about the state of minnesota and living in the state of minnesota so you know one of our Patron Saints, the one and only Prince, the artist formerly known as, however you know him, he has a song out there called Old Friends for Sale. I think that's a good piece of music to use when we talk about moving away and um, starting over when it comes to friends and your life and all, of, and all of those things. Here's a little bit of it, Old Friends for Sale by Prince to get us to our fourth and final movement. The sun set in my heart this evening 
Cause an old friend of mine got lost in the jam Little did she know When you're stuck in the snow Nobody gets out alive Tears fall gently in my Got a whole orchestra there. It's ready. It's ready for the orchestra pops. It's ready for the so-called subscription concert. And I'm not even a Prince stan like everybody else is. I grew up in a Michael Jackson household because my mama believed in that, mm. you know. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's not a, a statement to Prince necessarily as much as it's a statement to what he had in mind, the musical aesthetic he had in his brain as he was writing these pieces of music and how it can be applied, if anywhere, here in the state of Minnesota. If I were the uh, artistic director of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra or certainly the Minnesota Orchestra, there would be a place for Prince's music beyond the Prince tribute or, or however they sure. want to do it. It would be a, sure. a regular appearance. I mean, can yeah. you name a, a more notable Minnesota artist than Prince? It seems like he is the one when it comes to fame and not, not necessarily local impact, but just fame and connecting that fame to uh, the state of Minnesota and to the Twin Cities. Yeah. He's your guy. If you live in East Tennessee, that's Dolly Parton. You know, if you're from Memphis, where I'm from, some people say, Elvis, where? Hold on, where's my button? Mm. I hate to say it. I hope I don't sound ridiculous. I don't know who this man is. So, <laughs> but I say so. Some people say Elvis. I, I I go for more of the three six mafia. You know, we can talk about every city. You know, there are folks from Omaha. Three Eleven, the band Three Eleven. You mm-hmm. say is from Omaha. Maybe there's some more famous people. Anyway, bright eyes. All, all all of that as as a side note to say, I would be I would be doing that. If, if I were in charge at one of these orchestras, because the way he wrote the music is ready. You mm-hmm. don't even you don't even have to conceptualize it to fit into the orchestral paradigm because it's there. Anyway, that, that, that that's not the point. So I mentioned that I was playing with the Harmonic in Washington, D.C. over this weekend. We were celebrating after the performance last night. Yeah, last night and just talking about different things and, you know, uh, meeting with people. And I, I won't put a business out there because I don't want people to feel like they can't just talk to me and I'm just going to be putting everything on triloquy. So I won't say her name, but one of the violinists, she came up to me and she was like, okay, so care are you, are you really still in Minnesota or have you moved on yet from somewhere else? I was like, no, we're, we're still kicking it in Minnesota. And what she said to me really lined me up real quick. I, I had to think about it. it. It actually shook me a little bit. She said, Garrett, Prince is dead. And so is George Floyd. What are you still doing there? And I've been thinking about it since. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I finished my little glass of champagne thinking about it. On the ride home, I was thinking about it, the airplane. And here we are a day later. And that statement is still circling around in my mind. There's a lot of racial trauma, all sorts of trauma that live here in Minnesota. And considering the nature of virtual work these days, certainly my virtual work and Dell's virtual work, we could live just about anywhere and and our jobs would be maintained and and all of those things. At the same time, there's so much more than that when it comes to choosing a place to live. I've I've jumped around a lot. I th- uh, uh, the Twin Cities is my seventh or eighth place in, in my adulthood because of the nature of Western classical music and having to chase the job before choosing a place to live and, and doing it that way. 
I don't I, I can't take for granted the friends and the connections that I've made here. I, I chose that Prince track friends for sale because I feel like we're so ready always to give up the personal side of our lives, the social and emotional side of our lives for the capitalistic things that we are forced to think about for pro- professional trajectory and, and, and all of those things. I'm not saying that I'm ignoring the statement regarding George Floyd and Prince because I think it's a powerful statement, mm-hmm. especially considering places like Philadelphia, where you have so much black artistry and affirmation going on in the Western classical spaces. You know, out on the West Coast, there's some really phenomenally incredible things. I could I, I could go on forever and ever, and, and not to say that there aren't some great things happening here in the Twin Cities, but I can't help but to listen. To statements like that and and to think about it we're not moving me and me and Dell are, are here to stay for for many reasons triloquy being one of them as well as just having personal time with you to hang out and and do things i don't take our relationship uh for for granted i also acknowledge that there are, are certain privileges with my perspective on this state of minnesota and choosing to continue to live here my story isn't everyone's. Maybe yours is a, a little different or similar or somewhere in between. Once or twice a month, I start having the internal conversation about what a colossal mistake it was to move here. Mm-hmm. And then I moderate back the other way. It's all about the choices and being and accepting them. Because if I hadn't come here, I would be living pay, paycheck to paycheck at a different level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at a he says, still doing it like I am now, but different. Right, but, at, but different. <laughs> and I think that people are wrestling with that right now. Yeah. But I walked away from family. I did not walk away, but I moved away right. from family, friends that I had known for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And well, 30 years at this point. And uh, the, the only home I'd ever known. To move, tipping into winter, it was October of 06. To do an overnight shift in a society that is notoriously closed, Mm -hmm. that was a huge wake-up call in the middle of the night because people don't reach out. And I was like, man, this this was dumb. You were were feeling lonely. You were feeling isolated. And it still happens. It still happens. And a lot of this is my fault because of my own guards or walls or whatever that Mm -hmm. I put up. The biggest thing that I'm trying to do now, and it's the hardest thing, Garrett, is just trying to find contentment in moments. Listening to Aldous Harding, I don't know. um, The walk with radar. um, The pint at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You, you you, You gotta find something because otherwise... You're, you're never going to climb out of that deficit, that mental deficit. I can talk about life condition. You know, for me and my spiritual practices, I have gotten really good at finding those moments in all moments. I, I won't I won't sit here and, and preach about that today. I think when we talk about if, if we want to pare this down and, and focus it in on the arts and especially the profession of the arts, whether that's being an onstage musician, a classical radio host, whatever. So many of us have to hop around and we follow that job and we aren't always thinking about what we're leaving behind or why we're going or why we're staying or, or those things. And I want 
artists and arts institutions to actively engage that conversation. Why are we here? Why are you here? What is the purpose? What can be done? What are the opportunities? Where do the opportunities fall off into something that actually can't be done? I'm always asking myself those questions. And as I continue to ask myself those questions, I can't justify going anywhere else. Yes, we could do Triloquy virtually. There, there are all sorts of things that could be worked out. But my life is more than just work. And I think that more of us need to think about what that could look like for us to prioritize our lives over the work. I mean, Scott, I could I could ask you what that looks like for you, but maybe you haven't even taken the time to think about it. If 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 the work part wasn't a necessity, what would the life look like? Mm. That that is that that is just such a it's such a, a foreign an oppressive thi- an oppressive force. It's such that, a foreign you know? thing to think of is that I couldn't even begin to speculate here on the spot mm-hmm. as to what it would look like, what I would do or how I would uh, and, you know, be- and, benefit. And, and we're sitting here taping this on the the holiday, the the federal holiday of of Juneteenth. That's what people need to understand about chattel slavery is that the opportunity to dream and hope was taken away. So the the whole financial structure built on the backs of black people, you know, enslaved black people that gave that 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 is what all of this is rooted in you know those capitalistic structures where we prioritize the money and the money making over human life and human emotion that is something that i think we owe some very specific attention to when it comes to the american descendants of slaves and it applies to all of us in some way so i hope you know these can be words of encouragement to people Again, I'm not moving nowhere, at least not right now. But I think that conversation and that question of why I'm here has helped me re-engage more of those questions in my life. Not only why am I here physically, but why I am here professionally, why I am here emotionally. And if more arts institutions, more arts individuals could tap into that and create better lives, the art would come up with it. You know, mm. I, I think I think that's the the other part of it. If we're living happy, fulfilled lives, lives in which we are really driven by purpose and we are happy and affirmed in that purpose, all of the other things will bloom and grow. We tend to flip that around and say, well, if I just put my nose down and get this paycheck to do this, <laughs> my it. life will be better. But as as is a testament to to so many stories, that is just not the case. Mm. The fight goes on. The fight must continue. And I hope everybody out there will ask themselves that question. Why am I here? What am I doing to lead to some better prioritization of one's life, one's emotions, which will ultimately impact the work and impact the ecosystem? Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. 